This is Cast Club Radio. Brought to you by Heritage Distilling. On Cast Club Radio, we believe every spirit has a story. And stories like good drinks are always better when shared with friends. Each week, we'll explore the intersection of cocktails, spirits, beer, wine, and life. It's Cast Club Radio. Here's your hosts, Lydia Cruz and Justin Stiefel. Good afternoon. Welcome to another episode of Cast Club Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. My name is Lydia Cruz. And I'm Justin Stiefel. And I'm Maura Dooley. We are past uh, daylight savings time. We're into the full-fledged fall at this point. And we're also looking ahead to the holidays, right, Justin? Well, yeah, the holidays are not going to stop even if we have to. So they're coming. <laughs> they're on their way. It's like winter's coming, right? Yes, yeah, exactly. Good Game of Thrones reference. Plus, you were already, I felt like as soon as Halloween ended, you started seeing the commercials for getting ready for not only Thanksgiving, but getting ready for Christmas and starting your planning ahead for that. Well, even before Halloween, you know, when I was at Costco and Home Depot just doing you know household chore stuff, they had their full Christmas tree selection up for people to buy so for the fake christmas trees driving around my neighborhood this week i saw our neighbors several of them who have hired these uh, companies to come put christmas lights up all over their homes and garages and they are already up ready to go not plugged in yet and uh i'm i'm counting down the days before (laughs) we start to see them all lit up so people are Definitely getting ready very early this year. Well, I love it. And you guys in particular have a way that people can still get ready for the holidays with your advent calendar. Yes, we've sold through a lot of them already. Um, Of course, Girls' Night Out was last Thursday, and we had uh, about 1,500 ladies roll through the downtown distillery and uh, a lot of advent calendars in and out rolling, so that's good. Lots of people on the Internet ordering them. And, you know, it's only a couple weeks until December 1st, so folks still have a chance to get them, and they make great gifts. And what we do, we, we encourage people, get a couple of them, for Thanksgiving, have them next to your front door, because if you're hosting Thanksgiving like we are, and people come with a housewarming gift or something like that, you will have an advent calendar to give them in return, as a good host or hostess should do. Oh, I love that. Yeah, it's a great party gift. Either way. Either way. Either way. What's going on in the headlines this week? Well, not to be surprised, but our friends in Iceland went temporarily dry, And by that, we mean they were completely wiped out of all the beer because (laughs) many of the servicemen and women with a U.S.-led military exercise in conjunction with NATO, about 6,000 troops showed up in in Iceland and drank all the beer, literally (laughs) drank all the beer. Uh, According to reports, it's estimated that between six and 7,000 personnel landed and the bars were overwhelmed by demand and they had to request emergency supplies from the local brewery known for its gull lager. I assume that's named after a bird. And the bar owner wrote that they were fighting an overwhelming force. Oh, wow. Um, So kudos to the American service men and women who showed the folks in Iceland how we throw down and uh, we hope they we hope they uh, remain safe uh, in their service for our country absolutely well they'll know Iceland will know next time to to maybe better plan they'll know exactly what they need supplies wise be prepared that's right now next up planters the peanut company you're all familiar with the planter peanut the guy with the monocle Uh, that's the logo spokesman planters peanuts 
makes its first step into the beer market. Now, that headline assumes that there may be a second or third step to follow, so I'm just going to you know, throw that out there as a comment. But they've launched an IPA-style beer, Planters Peanuts. It is part of the Kraft Heinz Company conglomerate of products. They launched Mr. IPA Nut, the company's first foray into the craft beer market. They cited a study conducted by uh, some of their outside consultants that men agree nuts are the best salty snack to pair with beer. So they thought, why don't we actually make beer the perfect salty snack, which is what they did. And uh, they teamed up with the local brewery, Noon Whistle Brewery in Lombard, Illinois. The new beer will be supported by a digital campaign, hashtag Beer Goes Nuts, uh, across Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And um, if we can get our hands on a can or two of this, this would be really interesting. If you have a peanut allergy, do not get near the beer. Mm-mm. Yeah, I'm interested what a hint of honey roasted peanuts tastes like in a beer. Yeah. That's the description there. <laughs> well, exactly. you might say do this at home, take a swig of beer and throw some nuts in and chomp them up. But I don't think that's the same effect. No, no I doubt it. No. Mm. no. <laughs> and uh, lastly, you know, the topic of conservation and reusing uh, things in our society continues to pop up and the industry evolves. The drinks business is reporting that a Texas-based firm has launched a resealable drinks can called the Sip and Shut in response to consumer demand for uh, reusable aluminum cans. Now, we'll post a picture of this on uh, Cast Radio, but imagine a regular beer can or Coke can. looks just like a regular can, except instead of popping the top, there is a small door on the top that slides open, and you can slide it back to seal it and to reseal it. And it's 100% aluminum, contains no plastic, it's fully recyclable. It's designed in response to adults who have talked about wanting resealable cans for a long time. And uh, the largest percentage of those people is in the 18 to 29 range, which makes sense. Uh, Millennials and younger generations want more stuff that is recycled. So uh, it'd be interesting to watch this thing move across the industry because it could be everything from the new canned wines that are hitting the market, the new spiked seltzers that are on the market in the adult sections, uh, beer, of course, and all soda. And this could revolutionize how people think about uh, drinking a can of beverage, whatever the beverage is, no matter if you had a football game, baseball game, on the boat, at the beach, in your backyard. Yeah, absolutely. You think uh, how often something goes flat or you end up wasting something, but uh, to think that you'd be able to drink it, whether it's alcoholic or not, uh, that's pretty cool. Coming up on Cast Club Radio, something that might have been absent from your drink in the last year, you might have noticed, that would be a straw. Well, why is that? It's because exactly what we talked about, preserving the environment just there. Up next on Cast Club Radio, we'll talk to Emmy Kane, Director of Digital Strategy for Lonely Whale. Lonely Whale, of course, in charge of the Strawless in Seattle movement. It's next on Cast Club Radio. Welcome back to Cast Club Radio. Thanks so much for hanging out with us today. And one movement we've seen, especially in the local Seattle area, is the push to eliminate plastic and particularly eliminate something small and yet meaningful like plastic straws. The Strawless in Seattle campaign taking effect last year. Uh, This is a cause I'm sure uh, near and dear to a local business owner's heart, though, Justin. It is. And... uh 
we've talked about this in previous episodes, specifically about the straw ban, uh, which also came about as a result of plastic shopping bag bans and other things that are happening community by community. Uh, the interesting thing, and I'm going to be interested to hear the, our guests' thoughts on how to support the recycling industry. In the last 60 days or so, China has announced they're going to stop taking America's garbage. So when we talk about recycling and we talk about, okay, it's great to put stuff into recycling and we want to buy more recycled products to reuse and not put stuff in the landfills. And most of that was being bulked up and shipped to China, and they were recycling a lot of that stuff. If they're not going to take it now, where is it going to go? We don't necessarily have all of the recycling facilities set up in the U.S. right now to handle that amount of garbage. And uh, so that means temporarily a lot of it will go in the landfill or it will sit open. So one of the things that folks need to think about is how do they, if they really want to support recycling and keep it economically viable, We've got to figure out how to encourage more recycling plants to open in the U.S. to allow us to recycle stuff here locally to put back into consumer goods for uh, all types of products, straws, bags, cardboard boxes, on and on and on. Well, there was a local organization that kind of got the ball rolling on this last year. Right now, we are joined by Emmy Kane, Director of Digital Strategy for Lonely Whale, and Emmy... For those of our listeners who don't know about Lonely Whale, can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah. Hi, everyone. Um, So Lonely Whale is a young um, ocean health nonprofit founded about three years ago uh, by Adrienne Grenier and Lucy Sumner. And our focus is really on incubating courageous ideas that save our ocean. We're focused on the reduction of plastic pollution uh, in our ocean through three main pillars, including uh, scalable solutions, impact campaigns, and vital education. So each of those things that you mentioned, can you give a few examples of what they would be? Sure. So uh, Scalable Solutions is embodied in our Next Wave initiative, which is a corporate engagement uh, consortium of companies, 10 strong now. We just welcomed HP Inc. and IKEA joining um, this consortium of of companies that are actually creating the first uh, commercially scalable and global network of supply chains um, around ocean-bound plastics. Our vital education is embodied in our Ocean Heroes Boot Camp, which we launched last year alongside nine other organizations to not only educate the youngest learners about plastic pollution, but also to empower them with a very important campaigning skills that they need to create campaigns that measurably reduce plastic pollution within their own communities. And then finally, our impact campaigns um, has been embodied in our strawless work, um, which is what we're here to talk about today. Absolutely. This is a perfect lead in to strawless in Seattle. We've talked about it before on this show, but how did that come about? Yeah, so when we began our Strawless Ocean Movement, which we brought together various different ocean health NGOs and creative creative entities under this banner of Strawless Ocean, we realized that we needed to actually show a proof point and show a vision of what it could look like to actually have an entire city um, show what it could look like to be plastic straw-free. So Dune, our executive director, is based in Seattle, and so we came up with this campaign concept to produce a month-long campaign um, in Seattle, dubbed Strawless in Seattle and after the, of course, well-known, well-known movie. So playing off that cultural cachet that was already um, there and, and present within mm-hmm. consumers' minds. And we went out and approached businesses to join us in this one-month campaign to commit to redu- removing altogether their single-use plastic straws from their venues. 
how willing were companies when you approached them? Because, again, that is, A, I think a lot of people have a concern about the environment, especially in the Pacific Northwest. And yet it's also a concern for uh, their operations and their customers and how they go about their daily business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, most certainly. And it was definitely before kind of the straw mania that really took off after the conclusion of this campaign. Um, but for us, what we did is we really went in and sold these brands a marketing campaign for themselves as well. You know, how do you associate your brand with ocean advocacy? It's, you know, it can start by this one simple step. Um, and what we proved during this campaign was that there was a real interest from consumers at large internationally around this commitment from these brands to authentically be able to, to report back out on the impact they had around this this one thing, this one transition. So from just the month-long campaign to now actually being strawless, what was that process like? Yeah, so the month-long campaign um, actually concluded with 2.3 million single-use plastic straws being removed from the waste stream in Seattle. And that was across our myriad different partners there, everyone um, from the landmark Space Needle to the very first airport that committed to removing single-use plastic straws to the aquarium. Um, And then, you know, on the day of of our press junket, the city of Seattle actually joined us in announcing the fact that they would ban single-use plastic straws and cutlery from the city in July of 2018, which just went into effect a couple months ago. That's pretty incredible. Wow. So really proving what kind of impact you can have. You just started with this idea and then it grew into this movement. How much plastic was actually being used and now as a result is being saved? That's a really good question. Um, What we did when we went in with this campaign was actually ask the partners that we brought on board for Starless in Seattle to keep track of the number of straws they were, plastic straws they were using, and then how many they were um, not using for that month and, and how much they actually reduced the use of the alternatives. So whether that's a marine degradable paper straw that some businesses chose to use or reusable metal, et cetera. Um, and so that was a really important aspect of our campaign. And it actually, I think, provoked a lot of businesses to start to take a bit closer look at their plastic usage throughout their different supply chains. However, you know, that might take shape within their specific business. Have there been other cities or other communities that have been inspired by what's happened here? Yes, definitely. So, I mean, I think Seattle really led the way in a remarkable fashion uh, and and inspired not only cities, but also entire countries to take up this banner. Uh, And so in the spring, actually, after a kind of incredible outpouring of interest to our team, um, and our team is tiny, it's just three full-time staff, wow. uh, we decided to actually release the toolkit. So changing our strawless ocean movement into a an open source toolkit under the banner of Forest Strawless Ocean so that corporations and individuals and countries could add their name or their banner or whatever it was in front of that Forest Strawless Ocean and allow them to join this movement under the same visual identity and the same ethos. And we're now seeing that employed everywhere from, from Poland to China um, and to Chile, where the Ministry of Environment and has actually used it to launch their own Chabumbias campaign. That's pretty inspiring, especially when you say that it is a three-person company. Is that helped by whether it's volunteers or just community people that want to get involved? Yes, definitely. So we were founded on the principle of radical collaboration. So everything that we do is with a minimum of one other partner. Uh, And we really rely on the strength of the local leaders, um, which was definitely embodied with uh, our work in Seattle. Notably, Russell Wilson, the Seattle Seahawks quarterback, joined uh, this campaign, joined Starless in Seattle as our local hero. And his 
strength of leadership and really rallying a community, one that you know will follow him, follow him all the way to the ocean mm-hmm. um, from the from the football field, uh, was really a marker of our success as well, and is something that we continue to use and to leverage across all of our different initiatives. Well, Emmy, what's next? What's the next step for either what, uh, your company for Lonely Whale or for people who want to get involved and want to see this grow? So we chose the straw pretty t- strategically as a gateway plastic into the single-use issue. Um, and, you know, amongst our, our work and various other initiatives and also pieces of content that were released this year, including, you know, Blue Planet 2, we've really seen the single-use plastic mm-hmm. issue grow internationally, notably this week even being named the word of the year by Collins Dictionary. And so we really think that this this is just the beginning. And so for us, we're really excited to see that this movement for Astralis Ocean was the wake-up call to the plastic pollution crisis that we envisioned. And we're really looking forward now to taking it to the next level. Emmy, thank you so much. We really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to talk. And where can people get more information if they want to get involved or just learn more about Lonely Whale? course. So you can follow us at Lonely Whale on all social media platforms. And if you want to learn a little bit more about our work and the Strawless Ocean Initiative, you can visit strawlessocean.org. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time. Of course. Thank you. Coming up next, we're going to talk to Erin James. She's an author, the editor of Sip Northwest and Cidercraft magazine. She knows pretty much everything there is to know about cider, and she's going to give us an education. That's next on Cast Club Radio. Welcome back to Cast Club Radio. Your host, Lydia Cruz, with you right now. We're joined by Aaron James. You have your hand in so many things. Author of Tasting Cider. We were just talking about it. Editor-in-chief of Cidercraft Magazine and Sip Northwest. How's it going? That's good. Welcome. Good to be here. Thank you. Is this a good time to talk about cider? Yeah, it's always a good time to talk about <laughs> cider. <laughs> so what can you tell us about your book, Tasting Cider? Yeah, so uh, Tasting Cider is um, a the Cidercraft Guide to the Distinctive Flavors of North American Hard Cider. Uh, just like the magazine, we cover ex- semi-exclusively North American cider. In the book, it is exclusively North American cider. So cider made in Canada and the U.S. for this. The book is broken up into pretty much four different sections. Starts out with the basic historic background intro, basics of cider that brings you up to speed of why and how it is America's fastest growing beverage segment and how it's kind of skyrocketed into the spotlight. And then from there, I break it down into 11 different categories of cider and then Perry, which is cider's cousin. It's fermented, (laughs) all fermented pear juice. And now that I say that, backing up a little bit, cider, in case you didn't know, is fermented apple juice. Actually, Americans are pretty much the only culture that produces alcoholic cider and calls it calls a million different things cider. Because, I mean, my husband and I were just talking about this the other night. And we have a British friend that we sent to the grocery store and we're going, get, get some cider. And my, Nick, my husband, meant apple juice. And our English friend was just like, there is not any cider at this place you told me to go to. I'm not seeing anything. They don't even have a beer aisle. And he kept saying, no, 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 the cider is an alcoholic. And the friend's going, what is non-alcoholic cider? That is ridiculous. So many other cultures have adapted cider, the boozy version, and you would call the other stuff apple juice. So so trying to push that lexicon out into the universe, especially in the Pacific Northwest where we're so apple-friendly, 
friendly and ciders become huge. So we got those first, that first section, and then the second section profiled 26 different cider makers that all fall within those 12 different categories. I, I heard that you have some recipes in there. I was going to ask you about these. What is is that ways that people can cook with cider or what's one of those ways? Yeah. So I have um, 30 cocktail recipes of cider, oh, which man. are really fun. Yeah. I've been into this one lately called Oh Snap. Um, <laughs> I like it. <laughs> it's Aperol, uh, ginger liqueur, lemon juice, apple juice, and then um, you top with like a semi-sweet cider. So I made um, I did an event the other week where I made this in bulk, um, and I did it so perfect for holiday parties. And then it's a aperitif cocktail, so it's like lower proof, which is so hot right now too. But I just dumped an entire bottle of Aperol in there, so 750 milliliters of Aperol, <laughs> and then half a bottle of ginger liqueur, so 375 milliliters of um, ginger liqueur. Um, I use Salish Seas down in um, Lacey. Um, they're delicious. Um, and then half a cup of apple juice and a cup and a half of lemon juice. And then mix it all up, pour it in a cup, put ice in it, and then top whatever space you have left in the cup with the semi-sweet cider. And I just use Seattle Cider Co's. Wow. And awesome. it is a, it's probably it's, really pretty, too. It, it, I was like seeing it. it. Yeah, it's, wow. red, it's red and gold. It's very pretty. So it's red from the Aperol. It sits on the bottom, and the golden cider floats on top. Very holiday-friendly. Yeah. It's good. And plus, I made it earlier in the day and just kept it in the fridge and... It was easy. It was really easy for, for bulk making. So. Yeah. Awesome. We talk yeah. a lot about a lot of cocktails on the show, and I haven't seen cider-themed cocktails. That sounds delicious. Oh, man. I'm yeah. like, I'm really into it. I'm to segue into my recipe section of yes. the book. Um, cheese and ciders. Cider is such a great pairing food. It goes with so many things because it has that fruit and because it has acid. More often than not, when pairing with food, you when alcohol, you need acid because um, the food will usually be richer than the drink. So um, acid always comes in tow with cider. So, But cheese is like my happy place. <laughs> I always tell my husband my, my true love in life is cheese, then our dog, then him. He's a close oh, third. He's you a know. Very, yeah. very close third. Yeah. yeah. But, um, but yeah, the, the book has so many awesome food recipes too. Um, my favorite though, I have to show you guys this photo. Yes. It's a maple bread pudding with cider-soaked apples. Oh it's my so good. It says it serves four. I don't know the size of those four people in in uh, hindsight. Yeah, probably it really feeds <laughs> probably know, Lydia. twelve. I think yeah, I, I can split that. Yeah, we could do it. We <laughs> could definitely it. feed twelve. But it's so good, and it's it has like a cup and a half of maple syrup in it, which will cost you about twelve to fifteen dollars. But it's worth every penny. I promise <laughs> exactly. you. Exactly. You will so be the good. most popular person at your party. Yeah, no, bread yeah. pudding is an expensive thing to make. It's yeah. worth it. It's worth all of it. What is maybe just one misconception that people who like have yet to try it or have yet to get into cider you think that is stopping them from ordering cider at the bar? Uh, I would say by far the biggest misconception about cider is that it's sweet. And that is there definitely are ciders that are sweet, but um, cider almost by definition is fermented to dryness. There's um, it depends on the producer, but there is either sweetness, sugar, which can be sh- from sugar, from juice, unfermented apple juice, added back in to create that sweetness and m- other ways of doing it, too, to make it sweeter again after it's been fermented. But if you want to try a dry cider, if that's what you're drawn to, a lot of ciders will be labeled that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can ask a bartender and say, hey, what's this like? But I would say sweetness is by far the the biggest misconception that cider is sweet. So yeah, can I ask just on a personal level, how did you get so interested in cider? And because obviously, yeah, writing for being editor of 
two publications writing this book. How'd you get so into it? Uh, so Sip Northwest, we've been covering, we're, we've been around for about seven, almost seven years now. And we've wow. been covering cider probably for the last four and a half, five years of that, increasingly so with the industry as it's grown. Um, and so from there, we launched Cidercraft in May of 2014. And Doing that and launching that, it required me to learn so much about the beverage. Um, and I'd written about it a little bit in SIP, but with Cider Craft, craft it being its full f- cider being its full focus, obviously, just really had to dig in a lot more. So yeah. got into it. And I don't know, I, there, there's something about cider producers. They have this really kind of like purity to their passion. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it hasn't, a lot of people come from different beverage fields, but they have just this. I don't know. It's just honest and excited. I don't know. There's this this temperament that you don't see in other beverage fields because they haven't quite been jaded as much yet. <laughs> so it's just it's so wonderful. It's, there's a, there's an enthusiasm that is just completely infectious. So that's just that's been really really fun about the industry. But I mean, Washington in general is pretty hop in place for all types of. I mean, craft Beverage, breweries, yeah. craft, yeah, wineries, yeah. everything. It's an exciting time. Yeah, seems I, like. think, I think we're still the Washington has more distilleries than any other state in the country, too. Yeah. Beat out wow. Kentucky. Super wow. exciting. Yeah. Yeah. That's an accomplishment. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Oregon still leaves breweries, but still. It's cool. Yeah, it's very exciting to be involved in this industry right now. What's, what's one thing you'd like to see develop in the industry or you'd like to see one place you'd like to see it go? With cider, I, I, probably the biggest project going on within the industry right now is establishing a lexicon and establishing a consistent language to use wow. from both the consumer and the producer. I know, next level shit here. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Can I say that on the radio? Sorry. No. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it, it's, there's, it, touching on kind of what we were saying earlier, there's a slight identity issue with cider of the consumer being like, wait, is it a beer? Because mm-hmm. right, so many times, I'm sure cider producers could tell you this, people come in, they're like, oh, I don't, I can't have gluten. They're like, okay, it's an apple. Yeah. Like, there's no gluten. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that that's kind of one of the biggest issues is establishing a, a normative language. And so uh, trying to, not so much pulling away from being like, okay, stop calling it hard cider, let's just call it cider. It's more um, kind of coming out with style guidelines, kind of setting standards. A lot of producers don't want to be pigeonholed in so many ways. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that having some clear talking points with the consumer will help the consumer understand. And I think that's really the the next step for the industry is is setting up normative language. And so that's the United States Association of Cider Makers is a real thing. It's yeah. a massive national association and they're really pushing for for a lexicon. And that's really exciting. So the first thing they put out were style guidelines, which with actual established standard categories. So like one's called heritage cider, one's called modern cider. There's fruit ciders, there's hop ciders. So those are all, and that's really similar to what we did in the book too. Um, We had a little different names, a very similar mindset. So I was like way ahead of the time here when I wrote this. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so that, that kind of stuff is really exciting to see because Something like heritage can mean a couple different things, but it's still establishing that normative language. I feel 
a lot more educated on cider because I was one of those people that didn't quite understand. So. Oh, good, because I feel like I just spat words at no, you. No, <laughs> very cool. So if people want to get this book, which they should, for the holidays, for the family, friends, make those recipes, be the most popular person at your holiday party, where can they get it? We, um, well, we sell it on cidercraftmag.com. Uh, it's on, for those of you who are lazy like me, you can buy it on Amazon <laughs> in about three clicks. <laughs> um, and uh, Barnes & Noble is a huge supporter, too. Um, you, I think you could buy it on, like, Target and Walmart online, yeah. too. But um, guaranteed, if you're shopping in-store, Barnes & Noble will have it. And then in, for Seattleites, um, Elliott Bay Book Co., Book Larder, uh, Third Place Books. I'm trying to think of who else. A couple little shops around here, too. So there's a lot of people well, that Local are support, caring. yeah. Yeah, it's been neat. fun. Well, I go in and harass people. I'm like, hey, I see you have a local author section. <laughs> I see my book on the bottom shelf here. Right. How about we uh, talk about moving it over there? Oh, it's <laughs> so. so cool. Well, thank you so much for yeah, coming in you. and yes, spending time. You. And that was Erin James, author of Tasting Cider and editor at Sip Northwest and Cidercraft Magazines. Coming up next, we pay tribute to a legend in the distilling world. Welcome back to Cast Club Radio. In just a few minutes, we've got a great cocktail recipe for you, a great November cocktail. But up first, Kind of some sad news in the industry. We usually get to talk about fun, cool, weird things going on. But this is a little bit of a somber note today, the passing of someone who meant a lot uh, to the distilling industry. Yes, that's a famed distiller named Dave Pickerel. He really changed the way the craft spirits, especially whiskey, uh, began to form in the last five to ten years. Uh, he passed away November 1st in San Francisco. Dave wa- first became famous for being the master distiller at Maker's Mark. He spent 14 years at, at Maker's Mark. He left his uh, position there to run his own consulting company. And there is when we began to see a blossoming in the American craft spirits industry. He partnered with uh, many smaller new craft distillers. Some of the more famous ones now and bigger ones in the market are Whistle Pig out of Vermont, Hill Rock out of New York. He helped the George Washington Distillery, which is in Mount Vernon, Virginia. He helped uh, it get the Virginia legislature to enact a law to allow that distillery to get licensed and reopen, and then he worked to reopen it, and he actually went and made the first batches of George Washington's uh, whiskey recipes when that opened uh, several years ago, really teaching people how stuff was made in the old in the old ways. More recently, uh, he helped a local company, Woodenville Whiskey, get off the ground, become a major success story in the region and nationally. And uh, even more recently, he joined with Metallica, to have Metallica uh, start their new whiskey called Blackened. And the, we talked about that on the show uh, a few series ago. And this uh, death comes as a surprise to everybody. He was 70 years old, but if you saw pictures of him, he didn't look that old. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had a, a face that uh, belied his years. Uh, but he was just somebody who liked to teach, loved whiskey, loved the science behind it. And uh, he has lots of YouTube videos all over the Internet where you can go and just watch him talk about whiskey, how to taste whiskey, the notes that are produced by different types of whiskeys and uh, flavor profiles and so on. And so someone who wants to really understand the genius of what he was, 
can spend some time uh, listening from his own lips, the beauty of American whiskey and what it's about. And it's a sad day in the industry. And hopefully he will become a uh, posthumous member of the Kentucky Bourbon Hall of Fame. I would imagine so. His what he grew up with, you know, he described itself himself as growing up in abject poverty, and then putting himself going to school at West Point, uh, studying science there. Not only being an athlete, playing football, but getting a degree in chemical engineering from the University of Louisville. Pretty impressive. And I was actually when I was reading his story, I saw a little bit similarity to you, Justin, in that um, both of you. I mean, you have some science background as well. But you also strike me as very similar because you enjoy talking to people about your product and talking to them about how it's made, the science behind it, and educating people, which I think is is amazing. Well, we live in a time where uh, people have access to unlimited amounts of information. Yeah. And that's a matter of sorting through and helping them really kind of distill down, to use a, a bad pun, to distill mm-hmm. down uh, what is most relevant and useful for them. And to the extent that we can all get together to make the industry better, healthier, stronger, and more representative of the communities that they live and work and serve. Yeah, I'm happy to pick that up and run with it. But uh, this this guy was a giant in the industry, and uh, no one will be able to fill his shoes. And uh, he helped really become the grandfather of the modern craft whiskey movement. I just love anyone that you can you can feel their passion just by. For it sounds craft. like anyone who talked yeah. to him about whiskey could just feel the passion come through. And I I think that anyone that can become a part of something they love that much in their life is is blessed. Yes. So uh, we this weekend we will raise a toast to Dave Pickerel. Make it bourbon. The, the grandfather of the modern craft whiskey movement. Yes. If you want to raise a glass, but you're not a huge fan of whiskey or bourbon, uh, how about the cocktail that you guys have, a great cocktail recipe for people to make this week? Yes, uh, this week we have a vodka-based cocktail. We call this Rhymes with Orange. Get a tumbler of ice and some vanilla syrup. We use raft vanilla syrup, fresh lime juice from a lime, some of our blood orange vodka, and then uh, blood orange soda. So this is a very orange-focused drink. Uh, it's very light and refreshing. does not taste like a creamsicle. It tastes a little light and bubbly. It's great to drink before a big meal like Thanksgiving because it doesn't fill you up. Uh, you can even add a fresh uh, couple cranberries in there to garnish it. Fill the tumbler with ice. Put a half ounce of the raft vanilla syrup, half ounce of the lime juice, two ounces of the blood orange vodka, and then top that off with some dry blood orange soda. Dry is the brand of the soda. And uh, garnish it with cranberries and maybe at the Thanksgiving dinner, a sprig of rosemary or thyme to float. Ooh. Oh, that sounds so festive. I love it. Well, speaking of those holiday parties and great things that you can bring if you're either a guest or if you can provide for your guests if you're hosting. Justin, you guys have eggnog going on right now. We do. We've got uh, the fresh, organic, small batch, locally made eggnog in our tasting rooms. And uh, you can go in and get those. They are sold in the one liter size bottles. Uh, No alcohol in them, but it is designed so you can match any number of our spirits uh, into the eggnog and make a great cocktail. And because there's no alcohol, the kids can enjoy it. It's all organic, five ingredients, all natural. And uh, if you happen to be down in Eugene and you want to pick up some of the new rum we've been making, that goes great in the eggnog as well. Delicious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Well, as always, you can check out the recipe for the Rhymes with Orange cocktail. You can see photos of the resealable aluminum can or any of the stories we talked about. That's available at heritagedistilling.com, where you can check out this episode plus past episodes of the podcast. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Cast Club Radio. You can also find us at heritagedistilling.com. And you can go and download past episodes at, of the podcast at Cairo FM. Or you can also find us on 710 ESPN on your AM dial. And as always, you can send us an email, too, because if you have great holiday entertaining ideas, it's that time of year. And we'd love to hear from you if there's special cocktail you're making, special food you're making. We'd love to hear it. As always, we will see you next week. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Cask Club Radio, brought to you by Heritage Distilling. Check us out on MyNorthwest.com to learn more and catch up on past episodes. Cask Club Radio, brought to you by Heritage Distilling.